And we're back with another episode of Gladio Free Europe. I'm Abram, today I'm joined by Liam. Hey, how you doing? In a previous episode, we talked about the Japanese rock band Les Rallies Dunedes. If you haven't listened to that one, basically they were an experimental rock band in the 1960s made up of a group of um, Japanese New Left guys who thought of themselves as radicals. And the original bassist, a man named Wakabayashi, left the band to join the Red Army faction in the early 1970s and eventually found himself in North Korea asking for political asylum. Where I believe he remains to this day, right? Yeah, uh, still alive, 75 years old. It's a fun story. Go back to listen to that one if you haven't. But Wakabayashi's story reminded me of something. In the late 60s, early 70s, North Korea was the host of several international delegations. Genuinely international. These were groups from all over the place, from all major continents, including the US. And a lot of these groups might be political factions you might not expect to wind up in North Korea. Yeah. I mean, one of these factions was the Black Panthers from America. There's one man in particular, Eldridge Cleaver, who was a very high-ranking figure in the Black Panthers. He held the titles Minister for Information, Speechwriter for Huey Newton and Bobby Seale, Editor of the Black Panther, which is the official newspaper of the Black Panther Party, and Head of the International Chapter for the Panthers. And he specifically was in Pyongyang in 1970, at the same time as Wakabayashi and the other Red Army faction members. So first question I had, did they ever cross paths? And the answer is, no. Ah, too bad. Probably unsurprisingly is that the Panthers were part of a delegation that were special guests to Kim Il-sung, and the Red Army faction members were asylum seekers. Plus, the Panthers only spoke English, and the Red Army faction only spoke Japanese, and they were in a country where everybody else only speaks Korean, so even if they did, like, bump into each other, they couldn't really communicate. So, I learned this because I read through Eldridge Cleaver's book, Soul and Fire, which he wrote in 1978 after being around the communist world, you know, living in Cuba, China, North Vietnam, North Korea, Algeria. And uh, this book is pretty interesting. So I decided to, you know, pick it apart and start talking about what I learned. But before we go any further, this episode is not going to be a detailed rundown of the Black Panthers or North Korea or Maoist third worldism or like any of that stuff. I'll explain what we need for the story, but I'm going to avoid repeating things that I suspect people who listen to the show already know, or, you know, you could easily, like, find reading Wikipedia. But, you know, I'm going to mostly stick to uh, the Eldridge Cleaver parts of uh, the story. Our good friend Liam here is going to tell us about the more general Black Panther parts. So, Liam, start us off. For sure. So, if we really want to understand the story of the Panthers, we probably should begin with the broader context of African-American resistance to American racism across the 1560s. And I think a really good flashpoint of this is the 1965 Watts riot, probably better understood as the Watts uprising. So the this uprising, which was in the Watts neighborhood of LA, right at kind of the height of the civil rights movement, uh, right, uh, I believe, very shortly soon after the passage of the Civil Rights Act, was a huge watershed moment, both in strengthening white American racist backlash towards civil rights, which the author Rick Perlstein, who we've talked about before in our episodes, he's convinced this was this key moment in basically establishing the modern conservative movement. But on the other hand, this riot and its aftermath also really crystallized black radical politics in the US, especially in California, but creating a new political movement that would spread all across the US. And as we'll talk about, even 
move abroad. And the inciting incident in the Watts riot was when a group of police, who I'm, I'm almost positive would have been all white in 1965, really brutalized a guy who they believed was driving drunk. The, the driver's brother was a witness, and so he walked home to get his mom to see what was happening. And then as soon as the cops saw that he was bringing over another witness, the cops beat up the guy's brother. And so a crowd of people in Watts gathered around them. Cops started coming to disperse the crowd. The crowd wasn't happy, obviously, because you know they'd seen this a million times before. And eventually people started throwing rocks at the cops. This led to a riot that went for six days. Something like 35,000 people were involved. So in a lot of ways, this was pretty similar to the more famous LA riots of the early 90s, but this was back in the 60s. Eventually, the National Guard had to be deployed because Watts is pretty close to the University of Southern California. They actually had National Guard's troops stationed at USC, which is crazy. And across the entire six-day riot, almost 4,000 people were arrested and 34 would be dead. And this is where the Black Panthers come in. Because during and after the riot, the first thing that this group did was create armed patrols that would follow cops and monitor their conduct. Whenever a cop would shove someone or arrest somebody in the neighborhood, a panther would jump out and try to gather a crowd of witnesses just to observe this kind of brutality and racism from happening. They would advise the victims of their constitutional rights while the cops were trying to question them or arrest them. And of course, this just led to the cops despising the nascent Black Panthers. But uh, they were quite popular among the everyday citizens of Watts because everybody knew there had to be some kind of resistance to this unfettered police brutality. You know, we talked about uh, what was going on in New York in our last episode with Derek about Serpico. What was happening in LA was no better at all. And if anything, the LAPD, especially in the 60s, was probably even more brutal than uh, their counterparts in New York. Yeah, I mean, the Panthers were the ones who stepped up. Because obviously, generally speaking, I feel like everybody felt like this is a thing that should happen, right? Like people should step up and like, you know, try police the police. You know, it's, it's like one thing to say it, but like it's another thing to actually like, you know, put yourself in harm's way like that. But yeah, I mean, the cops hated them. Like you said, they called them violent armed thugs immediately. And the press, you know, being who they are, just printed what the cops said uncritically. So... That's what the popular perception of them became. And, and the LA Times has always been very right-wing, and especially so in this period. Um, you know, one thing I think just we should clarify is that these groups that we're talking about, they didn't yet use the name Black Panthers to describe themselves. That wouldn't be until a few months later. That would start in Oakland. But there is a direct through line from these community patrols in Watts to the later tactics and organizational you know, practices used by the Panthers directly. Yeah, and uh, to quote Cleaver's words from uh, the book, he says, The Panthers of the 60s became the hope and honor of millions of Negroes in America. Without the nerve-wracking resistance of the Black Panther Party, I believe there would have been a step back in advancement of meaningful civil rights. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think it's super, super important to, to consider that uh, whenever you're talking about the history of 20th century radicalism, especially in the U.S. where it basically failed in the long term, I think it's important to realize that these groups still did have a really important role in shaping the conversation. Even if the Black Panthers would, in one sense, be defeated, they, they, uh, they were incredibly important in resisting the attempts to roll back the earlier victories of the 60s and defend the rights, essentially defending the rights that had already been won, I would argue. You know, we've both seen the movie um, Judas and the Black Messiah. It came out like a couple of years ago. Really good movie. It's um, about Fred Hampton. And, um, you know, Fred Hampton's like one of those people that's like a very 
inspirational figure, I would say. And uh, Eldritch Cleaver, not so much. Yeah, <laughs> much more complicated legacy. Even Huey Newton, like, Fred Hampton was, like, so precise, so on message. And not in, like, um like a politician way, more like in a, that is who he was, right? Like, he was a true revolutionary that inspired people. Huey Newton, he's, like, a smart guy, but he's, like, when you hear him talk, you can tell that he is just, like, a bookish nerd. Cleaver's a lot more articulate, you know, closer to the Fred Hampton style, but he is... We'll get into it. So, in the movie, Judas and the Black Messiah, like, Keith Stanfield plays this guy named Bill O'Neill, who was, you know, the guy the FBI put up to infiltrate the Chicago Black Panthers, you know, where Fred Hampton was the chairman. The opening scene of the movie... Bill goes into bar, pulls out a fake FBI badge. You know, he was wearing the, like, classic Dick Tracy detective outfit, you know, with, like, the trench coat and, and the hat. And uh, when he was, like, pulling his stunt, you know, he tried to hide his face so people couldn't tell that he was, like, an 18-year-old. You know, he says he just saw somebody pull up in a stolen car and makes everybody stand up, face the wall, pass everybody down, takes the keys for the alleged stolen car, then actually steals it, just, like, runs out, puts the keys in the condition, drives off. <laughs> It's a good scam. I respect it. It turns out Eldridge Cleaver was pulling a very similar move in LA, albeit much, much darker. He would pose as an undercover cop at a motel and uh, question the white couples in the room. And if the couple wasn't married, meaning a man was spending a night at a motel with a woman that isn't his wife, he would tie up the man and rape the woman. And he did this for two months before getting caught and going to prison at uh, 22 years old. Eldridge Cleaver has a much, much more complicated legacy than really anybody else associated with the Panthers. A rocky start, but every hero has his journey. And that was 1957, and he was let out in 1966, so, you know, he served nine years for this. You know, he did his time. Yeah, yeah, but yeah. <laughs> but yeah, during that time in prison, he, uh, he read Marx, as all of us should. He read Malcolm X. He got involved with the black Muslims in prison and supposedly converted, but didn't really stick to it when he got out. Um, I think for him, religion was more like philosophical rather than, you know, something you actually practice day in, day out. Um, his first book, Soul on Ice, and a chapter in this book, Soul on Fire, is about his time in prison. It's worth a read. Um, I won't dwell on it too much, but one thing stands out. The prison had this psychiatric department headed by a man named Dr. Schmidt. Um, no first name given, just Dr. Schmidt. And Dr. Schmidt thought that the black Muslims were crazy. And the only way to deal with them was through electric shock treatment. Cleaver made it out of prison with his brain, but a good number of the black men in that prison didn't. Yeah. No, it's, it's, yeah, it's, this is essentially torture. This is like Abu Ghraib type stuff that they were doing on US citizens, you know, if they were black and if they were Muslim. He rapes white women, goes to prison, renounces racism, and uh, comes out a Muslim communist. Uh, at this point, when he's out, the Panthers were two months old. And, you know, there were other civil rights groups around at this time. There was the Organization of Afro-American Unity. There were followers of Malcolm X. The Student Nonviolent Coordinated Community, who were more closely associated with Martin Luther King. And the Black Muslims that we mentioned, officially the Nation of Islam, who were followers of Elijah Muhammad and who Cleaver, like, you know, converted to in prison. Probably all know them as Nation of Islam, but, you know, at the time, everybody called them the Black Muslims, and in the book, that's how he always calls them, so that's what I'm going to keep calling them. Um, Cleaver got a writing job for this uh, left-wing magazine called Ramparts, and through that, he got hanging around, like, all these various groups, and just, like, uh, various black radical groups, specifically, and uh, the SN... 
CC in Nashville is where he meets his future wife, Kathleen Cleaver, who is, um, you know, this cool 60s militant black woman. She would eventually, like, accompany him in his travels. You know, they had two daughters, one born in Algeria, the other born in North Korea. We'll get there. All I'll just say is, um, Aldridge is dead now, and he died in 1998, but Kathleen is still alive today. And she wrote a book about her time abroad, but the book was never published. She is a professor at Emerson College now, and if you are a student in Emerson, you can get access to the unpublished manuscripts through your library. Fortunately, neither of us are Emerson students, so we only have um, Eldridge's memoirs to tell us what happened. But hopefully, once this is released, I'll, um, I'll email her a link to this episode and maybe she can send us a digital copy. Okay, let's talk ideology. Liam, start us off. For sure. Yeah, so uh, the Nation of Islam, or at this time, just known as the Black Muslims, they had kind of an indirect influence on the Black Panthers because uh, they preceded the Panthers. They really got their start in the 50s. They'd been around for decades. Um, and that a lot of early members of the Panthers had some previous involvement with the Black Muslims. So uh, to quote Eldridge Cleaver, Elijah Muhammad, who is, you know, the, uh, the leader of, of Nation of Islam at this time, uh, had stated that drug running, the pills, the grass, the heroin shooting, as well as the Saturday night drinking brawls had to stop. The Black Panthers benefited from Muslim teaching. It would later become dogma for us as well, and probably saved us from total destruction. Of all the charges the cops piled on us, drug dealing was the one that never stuck because we were absolutely out of it, thanks to Elijah Muhammad. We ultimately got to the point where in many urban neighborhoods, we shoved the drug syndicate completely out of the community. The second big influence, of course, is uh, Marxism-Leninism. Right. Because, yeah, as most people listening to this podcast probably know this, that the, the Black Panthers were an explicitly communist Marxist-Leninist organization. Uh, they were, to be more specific, they were Maoists. And uh, really, the probably the only Maoists in the United States who ever really did anything. And you're saying Black Hammer isn't doing anything? I'm not <laughs> sure about that. Yeah. <laughs> the, uh, the Austin Red Guards, yeah. Uh, I think that yeah, a lot of modern portrayals of the Black Panthers specifically focus on the fact that they were African-American, which obviously is probably the most important part of their movement because they were a black power movement. They were black nationalists, basically above all else. But their black nationalism took the form of specifically this kind of Maoist nationalism with the understanding that African-Americans were a colonized nation within the United States and that the Maoist comprehension of national liberation was necessary for black people. Uh, the way Huey Newton says it is, the Panthers grew out of the black power movement, but the party itself transformed the black power ideology into a socialist ideology, a Marxist-Leninist ideology. So the Panthers believed kind of the standard Marxist package, the idea that capitalism is behind the uneven distribution of resources, the exploitation of the rolling class, and then even the uh, establishment of racialized classes, you know, like African-Americans. And uh, that they believed that a revolutionary struggle was needed to establish a socialist society in which black people would be free. And Newton, like being this bookish type that you mentioned, Abram, he was really into the Marxist idea of dialectics. So uh, he said once, if we are using the method of dialectical materialism, we don't expect to find anything the same even one minute later, because that one minute later is history. Then Eldridge Cleaver would say, when we say that we are Marxist-Leninists, we mean that we've studied and we understand the classical principles of scientific socialism, and that we've adapted these principles to our own situation for ourselves. However, we do not move with a closed mind to new ideas or new information. At the same time, we know that we must rely on our own brains for solving ideological problems as they relate to us. And so what I think this all means here, both of these quotes, is that uh, 
although these people were working in a Marxist, Leninist, Maoist tradition, that doesn't really mean as much as you might think. It doesn't mean they were wedded to any particular policy proposals, that they had any specific understanding of the world that would have been shared by people in the Soviet Union or North Korea. I think what this means was that they saw themselves as part of a global socialist struggle, and they believed that being part of this global struggle would lend legitimacy to the Panthers themselves, especially to outsiders in other countries, and also give them kind of uh, an ideological tool set to understand the oppression of their own communities. Yeah. Um, just to go into the Maoist aspect of the Panthers, you know, they were fans of Marx and Engels, and, you know, they read the manifesto. As I mentioned, Cleaver read the manifesto in person. Huey Newton read the manifesto uh, in college. Um, they were fans of Lenin, believers in the revolutionary struggle, as all communists are. But more importantly, they were big fans of Mao. So much that half of the morning political education classes for Panther members were on Mao's Little Red Book. Another fun fact, the Panthers' first batch of weapons that they bought, uh, they bought that with proceeds from selling copies of the Little Red Book to Berkeley college students. I didn't know that. That's funny. College students were funding the Black Panthers army. That's hilarious. That's, that, that, well, yeah, it's funny that I'm, uh, you know, we could do a whole other topic on interactions between the Panthers, a whole other episode on the Panthers and the predominantly white groups at this time. But it was a whole con- there was a whole constellation of American radical organizations, you know, like the most famous or perhaps infamous or the Weathermen, you know. But uh, the Panthers were really the ones who had the strongest organization. They had the most concrete goals and the biggest short-term successes. And as we'll eventually talk about, they had the most interesting international links with other uh, just as legitimate groups in Asia and Africa and Latin America, too, of course. Yeah, we mentioned the other like black radical groups and, you know, there was like a lot of cross pollination, you know, like somebody might be part of the SNCC one day and then part of the Black Panthers the next day or whatever. So there were like plenty of black radicalism going around. And of course, there was also like, you know, white multiracial radicalism, you know, there's like CPUSA. Yeah, the and probably we should mention that in this period, the most famous was the uh, the SDS, the Students for Democratic Society which was, yeah, kind of like the DSA of the 60s with a lot of the same problems that, you know, leftists in America have today. I mean, it was the 60s. Everybody was radical. Yeah, yeah. The whole radical chic. You know, this is when you have like movies like uh, Network coming out in the 70s about uh, a major TV network starting a Maoist show. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, the reason we definitely did this episode is because you see stuff like that, right? Like you see a lot of depictions of black panthers or black radicalism you know just much more generalized black radicalism like in movies and tv shows and stuff but you never like see more accurate depictions of like you know very specific people and specific ideologies it is just more like um a black guy wearing a beret like that sort of thing like sanitized to just kind of like you know a black guy who hates whitey Mm -hmm. yeah yeah there's there's popular depictions of black radicalism at this time and even today were super condescending, you know, obviously, um, at, at their best. And at their worst, just uh, openly racist fear-mongering about black radicals wrecking havoc on the U.S. Yeah, I mean, it's also like you would never see a black radical in a movie talk about dialectical materialism. You know, those movies are absolutely written by college students who read stuff like that in college. So they know, like, the communist lingo, and they can, like, write the communist lingo into a black character's mouth, but they never do. No, I know, totally. And that, um, uh, just as an example, um, I, I love Sidney Lumet. He, he directed uh, 
Serpico, which we talked about last week. But his depiction of black radicals in Network is honestly quite racist. The the leader of the black of the the militant organization, he's basically seen as this like barbarian who lives in a shack and wears a fur hat. And I swear to God, I think when we see him, he's like eating a chicken leg the first time. It's not a shack. It's more like a slum. And you just see like all these suits like gathered around and like this black guy sitting in the corner in the slum, you know, just like all these like network people. Yeah, I mean, that movie was pretty amusing. I watched it recently. Um, uh, I think the the thing you're supposed to take away from that character's story is just that, um, oh, the Panthers just want to be on TV too. Yeah, yeah, which which I guess we'll talk about in <laughs> Eldridge Cleaver's case uh, might not be too far off the mark at least for some of these guys. Uh, but uh, they, again, going back to their influences, they they drew influences from all over the place. They had these really interesting, they, they were very interested in left-wing literature being produced all over the world. One of their other chief influences, who I'm sure a lot of our listeners know pretty well, was Franz Fanon, who was known for writing uh, Black Skin, White Masks, and The Wretched of the Earth. And uh, he was a really big early proponent of decolonial revolution from a Marxist perspective. So he was uh, seen, he was one of the chief influences among them. And another one was Che Guevara back in Cuba, who uh, pretty recently had been involved in a revolution in the Western Hemisphere. This is a revolution that happened in a society which once practiced slavery, like the United States, a society which had a pretty sharp racial division, also a society in which American capital was pretty influential. So in a way, I think that the Cuban model was seen as especially relevant to black American radicals, because I think that they could identify with working class people, especially working class black people in Cuba, more so than peasants in Russia and China decades earlier. Yeah, plus, you know, Cuba's right there, like the Bay of Pigs was all over the newspapers. It's like, in a way that like, the war in Vietnam or the war in Korea wasn't like talked about in the newspapers as this, you know, big embarrassment. I mean, Vietnam was sort of, but like, not in the way that like the Bay of Pigs was written about, right? Right. No, no, I agree. Yeah, it was, and because, again, the whole understanding that, like, oh, Cuba's America's backyard meant that Cuba occupied a lot more mental real estate than other social societies might have done. Uh, Huey Newton would say, Mao and Fanon and Guevara all saw clearly that the people had been stripped of their birthright and their dignity, not by a philosophy or by mere words, but at gunpoint. They had suffered a holdup by gangsters and rape. For them, the only way to win freedom was to meet force with force. Newton would continue, My revolution was only complete when I read the four volumes of Mao Zedong and learned about the Chinese Revolution. Cleaver, meanwhile, plastered Mao slogans all over the Black Panthers newspaper. So for him, Mao was a really significant influence. By 1969, every single issue of the Black Panther newspaper had some quotation of Mao Zedong somewhere on it. Yeah, scan copies of the paper online on the Internet Archive and, you know, some other places. And, you know, we flicked through them before recording. There were like, yeah, there are Mao slogans in every single one. Obviously, there were like Mao was on the cover and a lot of them, but every single one just had like some quotation from Mao. Um, I'll read a quote here from the book again uh, from Cleaver, who says, what attracted the Panthers to Mao Zedong thought. There were some parts of Chairman Mao's thought that had helpful and sensitive applications for the life of the Panthers in the ghetto. It was altogether appropriate that we picked the slogan for the Black Panther Party, a quote from Chairman Mao in the Little Red Book. We are the advocates of the abolition of war. We do not want war. But war can only be abolished through war. And in order to get rid of the gun, it is necessary to pick up the gun. Honestly, it makes perfect sense, right? Like, 
They don't want to fucking walk around, like, strapped, patrolling the neighborhood, policing, like, police conduct. They don't want to, like, get into gunfights with police. You know, they don't want to, like, do any of this violent shit. The only reason they do it is because it is necessary to, like, preserve some kind of dignity for their neighborhoods. Um, and, like, Mao's line right here, it can serve as a sort of helpful slogan, you know? You know, we're just gonna, we gotta fight this war, and then once it's over, we can, like, we can put down the guns and never pick them up ever again, right? You know, you know, one phrase that I don't think was used at the time by the Panthers, but has come up a lot in history about them, and eventually, and, every, and it sometimes also pops up in literature from other communist groups in the Philippines and India today, is the idea of an urban Maoism. Because the thing about Mao is that he was effectively a peasant leader. China, from, in a mark from Marx perspective, China in the 1930s didn't really have an industrial working class outside of a couple cities. The people fighting the Chinese Revolution were poor farmers. There was nothing like that in the American cities of the U.S., where these black radicals were leading this struggle. But they still found these lessons useful. They just transplanted them from a rural peasantry to an urban African-American working class. Um, so, you know, when I began this episode, I talked about, you know, a previous episode where we talked about North Korea. And uh, North Korea is coming back up because the Panthers were fans of Mao, of course. And they were fans of Mao because they felt Leninism was too rigid to apply to the current situation of the Panthers in 1960, which made it, like, hard to teach. So they were big fans of Mao's writing because, you know, it is just these kinds of slogans that you can easily teach you know, other Panthers, and then those Panthers can, like, teach to other, you know, would-be radicals who would join the Panthers. Whereas, like, I don't know, try try teaching imperialism the highest stage of capitalism to, like, a guy just walking by on the street. It's not that easy. Mao slogans, much easier. Kim Il-sung slogans, even easier. Uh, so yeah, they were big fans of Kim Il-sung, the great leader of North Korea. To quote Cleaver again, After careful investigation on the international scene, it is our considered opinion that it is none other than comrade Kim Il-sung who is brilliantly providing the most profound Marxist-Leninist analysis, strategy, and tactical method for the total destruction of imperialism and the liberation of the oppressed peoples in our time. To just take the dry Marxist analysis as it exists, it is not functional for us. We are in a situation where we have to apply the universal principles of Marxism-Leninism to our specific situation in a way that has never been done before. It was a major breakthrough to relate the whole concept of Juche. And, you know, Cleaver also continues, um, CPUSA challenged our right to adopt Marxism-Leninism. We could only do it under their good auspices. So this principle of Juche bolstered our own self-assurances. So, you know, in a way, adopting Juche was like a way for them to differentiate themselves from the more official communist organizations, you know, like the CPUSA or, you know, SDS or, you know, all those. Yeah, yeah. I also think we should kind of take a step back here because, uh, Juche, uh, Juche, I'm not sure how it's pronounced. It comes up a lot in American discussions of, you know, socialist ideologies, usually as a joke. Juche is associated with, like, you know, all of the extremism and violence that Americans associate with North Korea, you know. And also the extremism and violence associated with, like, online Maoists. Yes. And it, it, people have this idea that they, like, oh, they, they have a certain understanding of North Korea, which may or may not be true, as this uniquely oppressive society. And so oftentimes Juche is grabbed on by Western Maoists, or even less often by weird, like, super edgy Western right-wingers even, as a way to make themselves sound incredibly extreme. There's this idea that there's something uniquely 
nationalistic or perhaps uniquely uh, uniquely transgressive or even uniquely violent about Juche for modern like American leftists. But I don't think that was true for the Panthers. They weren't trying to be edgy when they said they were practicing Juche. They were simply drawing from the influences of Cold War era socialism. And one of these influences happened to be North Korea. And I think that if you actually look at the uh, what Juche actually is in the words of its originators, you know, according to Kim Il-sung and Kim Jong-il's writing, it's basically just very generic social liberalism. Uh, it's it's just very kind of soft, almost kind of hippie-ish self-affirmation. A lot of stuff about how Korea should be doing its own thing. Everybody should ha- should be free. And there's a lot of stuff about uh, people like being creative even and being being having the freedom to be great artists, which is kind of interesting. But uh, Abram, what do you have to say about what Juche as an ideology actually is? As you say, like it. it- sort of morphed over time to this much more expansive thing and also like um you know when we talk we think about the repressive you know kim regime that sort of came much later like in the 80s you know right now we're talking like the mid 60s and at this time juche basically was three simple bullet points number one political independence number two economic self-sufficiency and number three military self-reliance and, you know, through deliberate application of those three principles, the Democratic People's Republic of Korea is still standing in 2022. So, shout out to Comrade Kim. So a lot of your listeners might know this already, that the Black Panthers took a lot of influences from various socialist groups all across the world, from, you know, Mao to Che Guevara, even to Kim Il-sung. But what I find especially interesting, that I think a lot of people might not realize, is that this was actually a dialogue, and that communist organizations, particularly in Latin America and Asia, knew about this support they were getting from African Americans, and they spoke about this in their own writings. So in August 63, Mao actually released this statement that was a statement of support of American blacks in their just struggle against racial discrimination by U.S. imperialism. It's two pages long and it's in Chinese, so we're not going to read the whole thing, but the first paragraph says, An Afro-American leader now taking refuge in Cuba, Mr. Robert Williams, the former president of Monroe, North Carolina, chapter of the NAACP, has twice asked me for a statement in support of the Afro-American struggle against racial discrimination. On behalf of the Chinese people, I wish to take this opportunity to express our resolute support for the Afro-American in his struggle against racial discrimination and for freedom and equal rights. And uh, interestingly, then it um, the, the paper goes on to praise the various demonstrations African-Americans have led throughout the years and condemns Kennedy for not doing anything to help them. He uh, Mao believes it's a class issue, and he actually has a little thing here, which is a little controversial, where he says that the average white guy is not to blame for racism. It's uh, instead a problem of uh, just the white elites spreading racism. And I think this, I would argue, is uh, an aspect of Maoism that was not adopted by the Panthers. So when they're talking about changing it to their situation, I think that's a good example. They they definitely did not absolve everyday white people of racism. Yeah, I mean, it's all good stuff, but I just want to focus on that first bit. An Afro-American leader now taking refuge in Cuba. Let's go over who he is a little bit. So that name was Robert F. Williams. He was a black man born and raised in Monroe, North Carolina in the 20s and 30s. 
He was drafted into the army in World War II, and he served for a year. He came back to America, had trouble finding a job, because, you know, for a black man in the 40s and 50s, finding a job is easy, but, like, finding a long-term career was definitely not that easy. So, you know, he does that for, like, 10 years. Age 29, he enlists in the Marines in 1954, and he did not like the fact that troops were still racially segregated, and because he spoke out about this, you know, he got a undesirable discharge from the Marine Corps. So he went back home to Monroe, North Carolina, and joined the local chapter of the NAACP, where he very quickly became um, the chapter president. Um, I mean, he did some, like, really good work there. Like, he grew the membership from, like, six people to 161 um, in the span of four years. He got the public library to be desegregated. Uh, He tried to get the public pools, but unfortunately, the clan showed up. At this time in 57, the city had a population of 12,000, but the local chapter of the KKK has 7,500. Holy shit. The local clan chapter had more than half the official city population. So, you know, this is why you got to watch out for the suburbs. Because, you know, these guys are like living nice and safe in the suburbs and like commuting into the city to like start um, like race riots, basically. Yeah. And, uh, you know, so what's interesting here is that uh, this was a pretty common story across the 50s that some kind of nonviolent African-American civil rights group was formed, especially in the South, to resist the kind of just terrible everyday racism being inflicted upon their community. Then whites respond with extreme violence. This happened time and time again from, you know, Montgomery, Alabama to Selma. But what's interesting about this guy, Robert Williams, is that he had a very different response than a lot of other black activists at this time, in that back in the 50s, Robert Williams formed a militia. Robert Williams started a rifle club known as the Black Armed Guard with 50 members who were mostly veterans like him. And they actually got into shooting matches with the Klan. They would show up at places they heard the Klan was going to be at, and they'd be with their guns. Kind of like how the Panthers would later show up with weapons to, you know, uh, whenever the cops were around. Specifically, what they would do is, you know, they would hear a tip that the Klan is going to shoot up, like, um, this doctor's office, because, you know, it's a, uh, this doctor treats black people, or the doctor is black or something, and they would show up with, like, their guns and sandbags and, like, fortify the building and, like, you know, like, real World War Two like, soldier shit, and just, you know, try to defend it from uh, the Klan. And, yeah, it was, like, very extreme for something that's happening in, like, a, a city in the south of America in the 1950s. Oh, yeah, no, it's, yeah. I, 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 there's a, a lot of press is written about certain individual murders of civil rights activists like Medgar Evers, but uh, murder of activists was incredibly common in the 1560s in the South. There are uh, dozens, if not hundreds, of cases of people, mostly black, sometimes white, involved in voting rights efforts just going missing, never being found. Maybe their body would turn up in the swamp eight years later. You know, this rifle club specifically was, like, involved in this pretty famous case called the Kissing Case, which we're not going to get into because we've gotten very off track from the Panthers and Mao Zedong, but, you know, it's on Wikipedia. But basically, like Mao, Williams believed in armed struggle, and to quote, The black people must meet violence with violence as the only way to end injustice in an uncivilized South which led him to being suspended from the NAACP in 1959 after having been president for four years. Then in 1961, because of like, you know, 
fairly phony kidnapping charges. You know, the police inventing charges to like throw this guy in, in prison because they don't like him. He and his family decided to flee the country and ask for political asylum in Cuba. He had actually visited Cuba a year earlier in 1959, 1960. And when he came back, he started a, a paper called Crusader. I guess a zine or like a flyers, not like a like full-on newspaper because it was only just him writing. Um, but yeah, he wrote about like Cuba and like the improvements in like working people's lives in the revolution. You know, hyping up Cuba to uh, his um, his fellow Monroe, North Carolina citizens. Yeah, yeah, I think it's kind of funny that it was called the Crusader because these days Crusader imagery is very strongly associated with online right wingers. But clearly, in the fifties, that association wasn't there at all. Yeah, I mean, like Crusade was, I guess, just a more general word, and, and... yeah, general like, for struggle, basically. You know, you can make a you make a very a very loose comparison to how like the word jihad can have a lot of different meanings in Arabic. Or, you know, just like, white people stealing words. They stole swag. They stole woke. What are they going to steal next? <laughs> uh -huh. Okay, this part's important, because it's going to come up later. It's like poetry, uh, so it rhymes. He lived in Cuba for four years, and this is where he developed this internationalist ideology that combined elements of black nationalism and Maoist third worldism. And with official support from Fidel Castro, he hosted this radio show called Radio Free Dixie, specifically targeted at black Americans. And he kept writing articles for Crusader. Radio Free Dixie um, is interesting because that radio show also played in North Vietnam. So if you were like a, a black man serving in North Vietnam and you had a radio, you could turn it on. And you could hear this guy like um, broadcasting, uh, you know, just like these messages uh, telling you to like... Um, Stop this fighting and join the North Vietnamese because you're be much better off this way. Kind of, yeah, like like a Tokyo Rose kind of thing. Yeah, I mean, it's very interesting. Unfortunately, things weren't like great for him in Cuba. I mean, ideologically, I should say. You know, initially he says he got along with Castro and they had like very good relations, but over time their disagreements on racial issues caused a big rift between them. Do you know what the disagreements were? Here's a quote he describes right here. The party maintained that it was strictly a class issue and that once the class problem had been solved through a socialist administration, racism would be abolished. Yeah, I think, you know, that, that's funny because this is, this, is really, this is an argument that people still have on Twitter today. And yeah, I, I think Williams is right here. I think, that's, I think that assuming that racism would just kind of go away on its own once you get rid of capitalism, I, I think that's pretty naive. It would take a very different form. It would probably be much easier to dissolve, but it wouldn't happen naturally. Yeah, I mean, let's take an example, Soviet Union. You know, like at a certain point, everybody or the majority of people living in the Soviet Union were born after the revolution. You know, they were born in the Soviet Union. And you're like, there wasn't the kind of horrible racism that was going on in America in the 1950s. But, you know, there was still like ethnic-based discrimination going on in the Soviet Union. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, you know, yeah, no, I think we've talked about Soviet anti-Semitism in this podcast before. I know Russian Sam is a pretty good for that. Yeah, and uh, also in China, there's like, you know, ethnic-based, like, tribalism and, you know, discrimination and stuff. For sure. Yeah, oh, definitely, definitely. Uh, you know, and this is sort of, you know, it's a very idealistic view that, okay, once... Once we have communism or like, you know, a more socialist government, then, you know, this sort of racism stuff, just by it no longer being something that the government is imposing, like, it's going to disappear socially. And of course, that's not true. You know, I'm in total agreement with Williams on this one. But, you know, if you take the government's boot off your neck, that's still much better. Um, but yeah. And also, like, over time, he got much closer with Che Guevara, 
who he thought was much more in line with his, you know, William's way of thinking. Specifically, third world solidarity and the use of the armed struggle and, you know, a committed interest in the African Revolution. I mean, we'll get into this later, but uh, Che Guevara was much more interested in uh, African revolutions than Fidel Castro. And of course, you know, Che had a close relationship with China. And uh, remember, this guy, Robert F. Williams, is the guy who reached out to Mao and got Mao to write that statement in 1963. So anyway, 1966, Che and Fidel, you know, have a breakup. Cuba's growing closer to the Soviet Union. Williams decides, I'm going to dip. I'm going to move to Beijing. Not the first NAACP guy to go to China, of course. W.E.B. Du Bois visited China only seven years prior to this, 1959. And he actually celebrated his 91st birthday in China with a bunch of CCP members. Uh, a quote from Du Bois on that night of his birthday party. China, after long centuries, has risen to her feet and leapt forward. Africa arise and stand straight. Speak, think, act. Turn from the West, enter slavery and humiliation for the last 500 years and face the rising sun. Um, yeah, like, and Du Bois was really struck by the progress China had made in the short amount of time, uh, particularly the elevation of women to equal status. And yeah, he left China convinced that it would lead the developing world onto the road of socialism. So let's turn back to America for a little bit and go back to Robert Williams and how after his involvement in Cuba and in China, he would have a very strong influence on American socialists, particularly African-American radicals like him engaged in armed struggles against white supremacy. One really interesting group who preceded the Black Panthers and were absolutely influenced by Robert Williams were the Revolutionary Action Movement, RAM. They only existed for a few years in the 60s, and they don't really get that much media recognition in the sense that the Panthers do. But uh, interestingly, Malcolm X was a member, and MLK was a critic. Possibly unsurprisingly, J. Edgar Hoover was a sworn enemy of them. So uh, just to kind of get into this, the Revolutionary Action Movement was actually created by members of Martin Luther King's Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee. They got together in Ohio, of all places, to discuss this guy, Robert Williams, this globetrotting African-American revolutionary who was preaching the gospel of Maoism. They learned about his armed struggle in North Carolina, his belief that this was a necessary avenue for ending white supremacy, and eventually, you know, his travels to, you know, Latin America and Asia. And so these radical members of the SNCC got together in Cleveland and decided to form their own Maoist militia. They called it initially, the kind of funnily enough, they called it the Reform Action Movement to not seem too intimidating to people. But then eventually, as happened many times in history of the left, revolution won out over reform, and they changed their name to the Revolution Action Movement. Being Maoists, these guys were pretty extreme, and they were particularly enamored with one line by Mao, which was that, the enemy advances, we retreat. The enemy camps, we harass. The enemy tires, we attack. The enemy retreats, we pursue. And these guys meant it. They drew a lot from Williams' theories of urban Maoism, and that the leaders of the RAM believed that war was not only possible, but it could be won in just 90 days. They thought that the way that uh, segregation had pushed African Americans into particular neighborhoods and that these neighborhoods could be an effective base of essentially community self-defense, and that it wouldn't be hard to kick out the cops from their neighborhoods and establish independent socialist communes, essentially. All they needed was some kind of chaos to set the stage for this, and revolutionary discipline that could allow them to defeat the less organized forces of white reaction. We talked about religion before, 
And uh, if you can make an argument that Mao's emphasis on revolutionary ethics and moral transformation could have had something to do with the Protestantism of the black Christian tradition, that most of these guys, even if they weren't themselves religious, they would have been raised as Baptists or other Protestants. And so there kind of is some interesting links here. And of course, another link that we talked about at the beginning of the episode were the black Muslims who preached self-restraint and discipline, quite similar to what the REM talked about. So plugging in Maoism was uh, a pretty natural way to complement this existing moral program with some, you know, uh, a political hard edge. And kind of, I think that you could even argue that their asceticism was an antidote to the drug-fueled 60s counterculture that white America was engaged in. Yeah, I mean, we mentioned before, like, everybody in the 60s was radical, but everybody in the 60s was also, like, smoking grass, or, like, this was much more a white America thing, but, you know, plenty of black Americans sort of, like, you know, got into it too. And the black Christian tradition would obviously eschew this completely, but that kind of, like, um, like hippie radicalism is also a big part of the white radical, political radical movements, you know, like CPUSA, SDS, you know, all these things. So it makes sense that if you are raised in a very conservative Christian household, that you would be much more attracted to Maoism than, you know, the more hedonistic stuff that, you know, um, the white communists were doing. Yeah, but yeah, I mean, like, Maoism is good, honest working class ideology that will set this country on the straight and narrow. Um... But yeah, I mean, continue about Ram. They believed in rifle clubs, just like Williams had done, and Mao had done, um, as well as free schools, student organizations, farmers' cooperatives, so the guerrilla fighters could be fed during the revolution. I think you could, yeah, you could make, I think that uh, you could make an argument that the idea of urban uh, farming today sort of has its roots in the actions of Robert Williams and eventually the Black Panthers. At this point, you can kind of see how, like, all these things are linking. Like, okay, what Williams is doing in Monroe, what, like, Mao is doing in China, with like, Kim Il-sung was preaching in Juche, you know, like, self-reliance. You know, what is an urban farm other than, like, you know, having your community be self-reliant? Like, if the cops barricade the shipping lines into the town, you're not, like, starved out, right? Yeah. Yeah, it's like a jigsaw puzzle. Every single piece is just, like, fitting right in. Yeah, what was really funny is they believed in, like, a standing army of guerrilla fighters made out of, like, the young and unemployed... So basically, anybody who, like, didn't have shit to do, um, we'll just train them to be, like, a guerrilla fighter. But, you know, conversely, they were also, like, very strong believers in internationalism. You know, they pledged support for, like, all sorts of liberation movements in Africa, Asia, Latin America. They were pan-African socialists. Um, you know, all that good stuff that would later be adopted by the Panthers. And most people think of it as originating with the Panthers. But now you know, it all originated with Ram. So what happened to Ram? So in 1966, uh, a series of so-called exposés by Life magazine and Esquire described Ram as leading extremist groups plotting a war on Whitey. These magazines would describe them as a Beijing-backed group who were armed and dangerous and impressively well-read in revolutionary literature, from Marat and Lenin to Mao Guevara and France Fanon. Uh, so in other words, it seemed that the editors at Life and Esquire were very unhappy that black people were reading books. And after that, cops were all over this case. So it really seems like it's a straight line that as soon as these white journalists learned about the activity of this black radical organization, that suddenly put a spotlight on them for police all over the country. And so cops started tracking down members of the RAM, rounding them up, and charging them with conspiracy to incite a riot. And eventually, even the FBI was in their case. Like we said, this was uh, the time of J. Edgar Hoover, 
and Ed Jager Hoover explicitly saw these guys as his enemies. In 1969, the groups were effectively dissolved, and remaining radicals from the REM decided that their best bet was to join less radical organizations and hope to turn them from within. You know, join organizations like the Black Panthers. I mean, you know, Newton, Claver, they were inspired by RAM, but they weren't directly like RAM members. But at a certain point, basically, if you are a RAM member, you got to join the Black Panthers because that's your only, um, that's the main other option. Um, this brings us to Mao's second statement titled, Statement by Mao Zedong uh, in support of the Afro-American struggle against violent repression. Just the first paragraph. Some days ago, Martin Luther King, the Afro-American clergyman, was suddenly assassinated by the U.S. imperialists. Martin Luther King was an exponent of nonviolence. Nevertheless, the U.S. imperialists did not on that account show any tolerance towards him, but used counter-revolutionary violence and killed him in cold blood. This has taught the broad masses of the black people in the United States a profound lesson. It has touched off a new storm in their struggle against violent repression, sweeping well over a hundred cities in the United States. A storm such as has never taken place before in the history of that country. It shows that an extremely powerful revolutionary force is latent in the more than 20 million black Americans. Yeah, so again, this was this basically was a dialogue that African-American civil rights activists, both of the kind of more moderate reformist tack and the radicals among them, were their actions were being observed by the Asian and Latin American revolutionaries whom they admired. It wasn't simply a case of Americans LARPing, as you know you might talk about today. This was a genuinely international effort of which the Black Panthers and the REM were essential parts. People in America spoke fondly about Mao and what is going on in China. People in China spoke fondly about the Black Panthers and what's going on in America. I mean, remember Mao named Robert, Robert Williams in that in that statement. So you know they were close. Like uh, Robert Williams, like met with Mao. You know he lived in Beijing for very many years. So yeah, there was like a lot of cross pollination. So yeah, MLK was shot. It was a big deal at the time. News coverage and everything. Black people didn't take it well. A lot of protests that turned into violent clashes with police all over the country. Uh, and the Oakland Panthers really got into it with the police. So there's conflicted testimony here on what actually happened that night. In Cleaver's book, he describes it as they were traveling to somebody's house in three cars and they were ambushed by police. Um, you know, trying the police were trying to use the already violent situation just as an excuse to like kill Panthers and claim, you know, they started it. But in a book describing this evening, it says, two nights after the assassination of MLK, Aldrich Cleaver led a small group of Black Panther members in what he later called a military action against the Oakland Police Department. Armed with an AR-15 rifle and other firearms that he had accumulated over the previous months, Cleaver and a small caravan of Panthers drove through Oakland looking to ambush police officers as retaliation for the killing of King. All we wanted was pig blood, Cleaver recounted. What followed was a confused engagement that ended with Cleaver wounded and another panther shot and killed by police while trying to surrender. So, he made it out alive. Shot on the leg, but alive. There was a legal battle to keep him from going to prison, which led all the way to the California Supreme Court, who eventually ordered him to surrender himself to police um, by the end of November of that year. So, the shootout was um, in April. Legal battle went off for a few months, and then by the end of the year, uh, he lost and was going to go to prison. But... It wasn't having any of that. Cleaver was a big deal before this, but the illegal battle did generate a lot of publicity for him. Uh, you know, it was like giving speeches at college campuses and like various black organizations. Um, you know, people would gather around his house and you know he'd say some words in his front porch. 
So the day before he was sent off to jail, he was out and about doing his thing with his wife, Kathleen. Then he drove home. There were people outside, obviously. More so than usual, because this was his last day free, but yeah. Then he says a few words on the porch. He goes inside with Kathleen. Inside, he's greeted by a panther named Ralph Smith, who looked a lot like Eldridge. Then Ralph Smith and Kathleen go back outside. They continue saying some words. And Eldridge escaped with the help of a white couple from a mime troupe. <laughs> no way. Fucking mime saved this guy's ass. Oh my god. They cut his hair, gave him like a fake mustache, put him in like this baggy old suit, a bowler hat, gave him a briefcase. You know, they made him look like an old, like a raggedy old man, basically. Um, yeah, they drove him to the airport. And then he flew from San Francisco to New York and then to Montreal and then finally to Cuba. Wow. You know, so my theory here is that this means that Elder Cleaver didn't just have contacts with Cuba and China. He also had support from the French Communist Party. Oh, absolutely. I mean, we'll get into that later. <laughs> How else would a, 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 a radical mime troop be involved? That is the strangest detail. I mean, you don't even expand upon That's it on the book. crazy. Yeah, yeah. I guess he could be making it up, but but I, I want to believe that. Uh, they could just be like, I don't know, like theater people from the from Berkeley, and then he just called them mime troops in the book, but I, I want to believe they were actually part of a mime troop. I mean, it was the 60s. There were mime troops around. Whatever. Okay, so let, let's continue. You know, as we mentioned before, this is not the first time a black radical fled to Cuba to escape pr a prison sentence. And not the last, because uh, Huey Newton is going to do the same thing in 1974. But... Cleaver arrives in Cuba with big plans. To quote his book again, the early vision was to create a training center in Cuba for insurgent forces and to mount a return from there. What Castro had done in Sierra Macerita Mountains as a step in his overthrow of Batista, we felt we should try. The locating of a Black Panther training facility in Cuba had been proposed by Castro's people in New York, in fact by the representative to the United Nations. The plan here was to have small mobile units that could shift easily in and out of rural areas, living off the land, and tying up thousands of troops in fruitless pursuit. Remind you of anything? Like, this is exactly what R.A.M. said they would do. I mean, yeah, this is just urban Maoism, obviously, but like, it is just funny, like, so many generations of black radicals are basically saying the exact same thing. So yeah, okay, the plan was to create an international base of operations for the Panthers inside Cuba, where they would, you know, build alliances with other third world revolutionary governments that could help train fighters, you know, give them money, whatever. And then Claver was going to return home to Babylon, as he was calling it at the time, to overthrow the U.S. government. And I guess that's an influence from uh, Rastafarianism, I believe, right? Maybe Black, maybe a, a black Muslims say that too, but the idea that if Babylon has, you know, white supremacy... Um, also, I want to add here, just for some context, the idea of revolutionaries from the West, especially traveling to other countries to train, pretty common. Uh, the the Bader Meinhof gang, the uh, German Red Army faction, a lot of them actually went to uh, revolutionary Yemen. Uh, I guess, I believe it was South Yemen, right? was the one that was a socialist republic. And they trained there. They were there for a few years. Uh, the movie Carlos the Jackal by uh, Olivier Sayas kind of goes into that. So yeah, they were gonna just build this army of guerrillas, and they were just gonna like pull up in Florida and like uh, D-Day boats, D-Day landing boats, and then just take over the entire country. So that didn't happen, mm -hmm. as I'm sure you're aware. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, growing up in Miami, you hear all about that one. It turns out the Cubans didn't want to do anything that would start a full-on conflict with the United States. Um, and Cleaver did not take that well. To quote more from his book, 
1969, I had sent a cassette recording back to friends in the United States, warning how insidious and dangerous was the white racism of the Castro dictatorship in Cuba. The warning had been a distillation of views expressed to me by Captain Toro, a young black Cuban army officer, home on leave from fighting against the Portuguese in Guinea-Bissau. Castro, according to Toro, had come to power because he was the last white hope of the traditional Cuban ruling class, which, given the choice between a black-led revolution and a white one, had chosen Fidel. Unsuccessful in his attempt to disarm the black Cubans, he found it safe to ship them off to Africa. His motives became apparent in the collapse of the guerrilla movement in the Congo following the death of Patrice Lumba in 1961. Sheikh Havara had been sent to aid Mulali's guerrilla forces, but on the eve of achieving his objective, was recalled by a specially coded secret message from Castro. Everybody understood that Castro was pulling Che out of the Congo because of pressure from the Soviets, who had arranged things with the Americans. This was the fundamental betrayal of the African Revolution. So, that part about Cuban ruling class choosing Fidel over Black Red Revolution, that's obviously bullshit, okay? We all know that. The part about the Soviets working with Fidel to make sure things don't escalate with the Americans, that part's true. Um... It's honestly astounding how much people expected of Cuba around this time. Cuba's a tiny country, like it had, what, like 7 million people at this point? And they weren't all soldiers, like they were fucking citizens. Like, what do you expect from Cuba? Um, this guy, Robert F. Williams, like, it's honestly boggles the mind. Yeah, no, yeah, yeah. So yeah, so Cuba wouldn't work out for the Black Panthers, which meant that Eldridge left for Algeria, which is another kind of interesting country, sort of adjacent to first world socialist movements, because a little bit like Cuba, they threw off the, the the yoke of another, you know, powerful first world country. In their case, it was France, which meant that a lot of French socialists had interesting Algerian links, most famous being France Fanon, who would eventually turn Algeria into his adopted country. Eldridge, following in Fanon's footsteps, he would live for a few years in Algeria, and there he would set up an international base for the Black Panthers. Just like in Cuba, this was done with the cooperation of the Algerian government, um, there's actually a documentary called Elders Cleaver Black Panther that goes into this. It's on YouTube if you want to watch it, which is kind of cool. Uh, but there isn't too much we can talk about about his time in Algeria. I think a much more interesting topic, which really gets to the thrust of this episode, is that after spending time in Algeria, Elders Cleaver would continue going further east and would eventually end up in North Korea. So let's set the scene. Algeria, 1969. An ambassador of North Korea invites Cleaver to attend the International Conference of Revolutionary Journalists in Pyongyang, quoting his wife, uh, Kathleen Cleaver, about this. For nearly a month, Eldridge and Babon Booth traveled across the country receiving lessons in Marxism-Leninism and Korea's history. Um, Bayon Booth is another Black Panther that was also like there in Algeria as part of his international headquarters. He wasn't somebody that was living in exile, they just, you know, left with him. And they liked their time there so much that they came back the next year and stayed even longer. You know, we've already gone over the love for North Korea and the Panthers had. Um, but, you know, before his exile, Eldridge had this little catchphrase that was, Juche, baby, all the way. It was like something that he said often and then like other Panthers would say, just like, Juche, baby, all the way. Yeah. <laughs> Very interesting time in American history. Uh, yeah, Cleaver was still working on the Black Panther, the official newspaper, um, while he was in exile. And in the two-year stretch that he was in Korea from 69 to 71, 57 out of 69 issues of the 
newspaper featured something about the Panthers' alliance with North Korea. This is really a, a big topic for them. Yeah, like um, just even looking at the covers, there's like photos of Kim Il Sung on a lot of the covers. There's actually photos of Kim Il Sung and Aldrich Cleaver side by side on one of the covers. Um, we might use that one as the uh, episode art for this. But yeah, just like Mao was all over the newspaper by 69, from 69 71, Kim Il Sung was all over them too. Um, you know, they wrote about how Kim Il-sung and the Pyongyang government were the legitimate government of the Korean Peninsula, and they called uh, South Korea a Yankee colony. And uh, as I'm sure most people listening are aware, North Korea was doing much better in terms of development in the first three decades after the war. Economists named it the Korean miracle, and, you know, Claver saw it that way too. To quote, The North Koreans defeated Japan, the monstrous imperialist force of Asia, the first to bring the U.S. imperialists trembling to their knees. The Americans dropped 635,000 bombs and 33,000 tons of napalm in Korea during the war. That's over 100,000 more bombs than they dropped in the Pacific during World War II, you know, fighting the Japanese. It's just really hard to comprehend, I feel like. You know, uh, this has been harped on a lot by, you know, like leftist Twitter types, but uh, I think it really does go, we really should emphasize that even though the Korean War isn't really discussed much in American pop culture, it was an unimaginably disruptive and destructive event on the history of Asia. That that much tonnage in such a short time, in just a few years, is so hard to comprehend. And I think that really does provide an interesting framing for the modern day behavior of North Korean governments. Out of North Korea's 22 major cities, 18 of them had like at least half their buildings demolished. Yeah, no, the country was was genuinely flattened, you know? Like, hell, like, the, the bombing of Dresden, of Nazi Germany, that gets more pressed than what happened in the entire nation in North Korea. Yeah, the country was just completely leveled. And, you know, so here we have a state that started out as a group of guerrilla fighters going up against the Japanese in Manchuria, China, who then became the leaders of this nation that successfully fights off the Americans. And then in a decade had recovered and began exporting their message of revolutionary anti-imperialism to the rest of the third world. So, you know, it's a lot to admire, honestly. To quote comrade Kim Il-sung, the newly emerging forces in Asia, Africa, and Latin America must confront the imperialist strategy of destruction one by one with the strategy of unity. They must not only solidly unite politically, but closely cooperate economically and technologically as well. From the mid-60s to the 80s, the Korean government trained 2,000 guerrilla fighters from 25 different countries. Actually, that's a pretty good amount. Notably, the Japanese Red Army, you know, shout out to Wakabayashi. <laughs> Our boy! Um, he wasn't one of them. He showed up before they did that, but, you know, shout out to him anyway. Uh, the PLO, the Palestinian Liberation Army, uh, the official Irish Republican Army. Uh, that's a great topic. We should do an episode on them one of these days. Um... Yeah, he trained fighters in Zimbabwe against uh, the Rhodesian government. Um, but yeah, um, did not train any Panthers, though. And the Koreans were overall pretty proud of what they accomplished. Uh, to quote a Korean news broadcast, The fame of the Korean Revolution is widely known to the world across the borderline of Korea. It is a beacon of hope, an example of heroism, and a great inspiration for all peoples who want liberation and political independence. They also butt heads with the Chinese and Soviets a bit. During the Cultural Revolution in the 60s, they refuted Chinese Premier Zhao Wanlai 
his claim that China had become the center of world revolution. Kim Il-sung personally asked the Chinese government to take down a poster at the North Korean embassy that proclaimed Mao Zedong as the leader of the peoples of the entire world. And the Chinese government refused, explaining that they would observe the laws of the Democratic People's Republic of Korea, which they like, and would not observe those which they did not like. And, and uh, we should probably mention here that uh, this was a time when there was increasingly sharp divisions between China and the Soviet Union. And I think that uh, North Korea wanted to keep strong relations with the Soviets, didn't want to be to seem too strongly in the Chinese camp. They were trying to essentially play both sides. So it makes sense that they didn't want to... They didn't want to call, you know, Mao the leader of the world if they also want to get money from Moscow. Yeah, yeah and so the, and then the Koreans would also call Soviet leaders revisionists, which is a kind of common phrase at this time because of the desalinization campaign that happened in the fifties under Khrushchev. But I guess it's uh, it's this kind of independent thinking that attracted people like Cleaver to North Korea because, for better or for worse, they were ideologically independent. Just like Albania at this time, they had a very unique. And you could argue uniquely extreme interpretation of socialist thought that uh, was a little different from what was going on in either China or the USSR. Although we should probably mention that although North Korea was politically independent, didn't totally pick a side in the Sino-Soviet split, they were not economically independent. Uh, because the only way that North Korea was able to start recovering from the unbelievable destruction of the Korean War was huge amounts of aid from China and from the Eastern Bloc. They got um, more than $1.5 billion from the USSR and China in the early 50s, as well as some money from other social states in Europe like Hungary. They got the money, they were happy for it, but because of their principles of economic self-determination, they didn't really want to talk too much about it. To quote a report from the Hungarian embassy in 1960, the Soviet Union does not need constant expressions of gratitude for its help, but the Korean comrades are displaying too modest behavior concerning their assistance. And uh, another quote from a Czechoslovakian ambassador, Any bourgeois economist can easily calculate that the DPRK was unable to reach its achievements on its own, and it is similarly unable to provide the economic aid it recently offered to South Korea from its own resources. So, you know, basically all of Eurasia was giving North Korea the side-eye. And, you know, not in a racist way. But um, the Africans and Latin Americans, on the other hand, were all on board. You know, Juche baby, all the way. To quote Comrade Kim Il-sung again, If the non-aligned countries and developing countries wage a vigorous struggle together to establish a new fair international economic order, the developed countries will have to comply in the long run with the demands of the developing countries whether they like it or not. So yeah, the Koreans redistributed the economic aid they were getting from the Soviets to the Third World. And the Third World, in turn, turned to Juche. The Cubans, in particular, uh, formed a close relationship with the Koreans. Sheikh Farah visited North Korea twice in the 60s to check out their brand of Asian socialism and to, you know, sell Cuban sugar. Uh, Castro was also a fan quoted as saying, Kim Il-sung is one of the most eminent, outstanding, heroic leaders of socialism. After Cleaver visited for the first time in 1969, the Korean media started taking interest in the Black Panthers. To quote the Pyongyang Times, the U.S. imperialist butchers and their reptile propaganda organs are hatching an unpardonable crime to murder Bobby Seale by making a new charge against him. They would go on to write that, the imprisonment of hundreds of Panther members represents a shameless fascist barbarity against the 30 million American Negroes and an unbearable nefarious challenge to the progressive forces of the United States and the revolutionary people the world over. 
Kimmel-sung would eventually send the Panthers a telegram wishing them success in their just struggle to abolish the cursed system of racial discrimination of U.S. imperialists and win liberty and emancipation. So this all sounds great, right? Like uh, this North Korean support could finally be what African-American radicals were looking for. They couldn't get it from Cuba. They couldn't get it from Algeria. But maybe the North Koreans would be able to offer them the struggle they needed in their violent crusade against racism. Absolutely wrong. I'm going to continue reading from the Aldrich Cleaver book. Quote, I spent several months in North Korea in 1970, during which time Kathleen had our second child, also long enough to become thoroughly disenchanted with their brand of communism. At first, I was amazed with the grit and zeal of the young communists of North Korea. They were fanatical in their promotion of their premier, comrade Kim Il-sung. Some of the most zealous had entered into compact or vow that they would not marry or have sexual relations until their country was united with South Korea. You could not say good morning or hello to them without their responding, Yes, it is a beautiful day thanks to the inspired teaching of our beloved revolutionary leader, Comrade Kim Il-sung, who has filled our lives with the truths of Marxist-Leninist analysis and daily support in our burdens and obligations. That was good morning. And after six months, it began to lose its novelty, but not the power to bore me. <laughs> so Korea became a drag after a while. Oh, it's too bad, man. It's like, you know, you hear about Japanese tourists going to Paris and uh, developing Paris syndrome, where they realize it's not as nice as they expected. Here, you know, the Black Panthers are getting Pyongyang syndrome. They weren't saying that shit all the time. They were saying that shit to him specifically because he's like a guest of the you know, great leader. Like, the average Korean citizens say hello to themselves. But, yeah, it is very funny that, like, um, you know, this kind of mask they had put on for, like, guests really irritated him after a while. But it wasn't just Korea that he became disillusioned with. He continues on, In every communist country I visited, I saw events and people and policies, and I would silently compare that reality with my memories of home. Quietly, America started winning. For every government practice I observed in Korea or China, I would think about how that worked out in the USA. The longer I stayed in these foreign enclaves, the more I realized that America could not be instructed by them in anything that had to do with individual rights or personal liberty. The inner recesses of my being, the secret soul of my most honest self, is developing a searing resentment against the ridiculous claims of communism. If they couldn't convince me, I thought, how are they going to ever sell the rest of the world and keep them sold? After Soviet Russia and viewing all these third-world, third-rate dictatorships, I realized how special our democratic form of government and the people that made it click. So, he went to Cuba, North Korea, North Vietnam, China, Algeria, Central Africa, and eventually grew tired of all of it. So, in 1973, he gave up on the third-world thing and hung out with the first-world socialists in Paris, France. And then, finally, in 1975, he gave himself up to authorities and returned home to America. You know, I, just, I think it's funny that so many revolutionary leaders of the 60s and 70s, this is basically their trajectory, that they reach these incredible radical heights, and they might have a moment where it seems like the victory of, you know, their struggle might be at hand, and then they lose. And then in so many cases, they just give up, you know, like, uh, maybe most notoriously, you've got uh, some Trotskyists in America going on to become Republican neocons. You have Jerry Rubin, uh, you know, who's kind of this well-known activist who ends up becoming a Wall Street guy. And then you have Eldridge Cleaver, who would go to France, then go to America. And uh, he eventually would talk about, he would, uh, I guess he would also become kind of a businessman. But let's, uh, let's wait, let's, before we get into that, let's talk a little bit more about what Eldridge Cleaver would do before and during he would eventually come back to the U.S. 
Yeah, so I went through a lot in that time. We didn't talk about his visit to North Vietnam during the war at all. And what he did in Algiers or Paris, or the fact that like he ran for president in 1968, you know, it lived a rich life. If you want to learn more, just read his books, because I can't summarize all of it in like one episode. So now we're in the late 70s. There was no Mao's uprising. 60s radicalism was basically dead at this point. The FBI won. Um, what did Eldridge Cleaver get up to? Well, he became a fashion designer for men's pants. In the 70s, Cleaver would introduce what I think is probably the biggest innovation in pants design since maybe the invention of pockets. To be more specific, he actually invented a new kind of pocket in the pants. It's been, according to Jet Magazine in 1978, Eldridge Cleaver, who earned his reputation as a black revolutionist, has turned to designing revolutionary pants for men only. Unlike all other pants on the market, the pants that Cleaver designs and sells are specifically tailored to accommodate the male sex organ. We have been castrated in clothing, Cleaver firmly announces, and my pants open up new vistas. So there's a magazine ad we have for his pants that's described as a new fall collection from Eldridge de Paris. It basically has a medieval cod piece built into the pants. So uh, you get a little more room to breathe, you could say. Imagine there's a sock stitched to your crotch. And, you know, when you put on your pants, you put like your dick and testicles inside that sock. So then it's just like flapping around like in front of you. Yeah. And uh, the, the advertising campaign was, you'll be cock of the walk with these pants. Yeah. Yeah. So Cleaver would say that uh, it's had health benefits, you know, because, oh, because uh, he believed that heat was had a decomposing impact on sperm cells and that traditional pants would, you know, kill your sperm production. He also around this time adopted Christianity. So he totally abandoned his uh, prison era Islam, but he would sort of in a weird way kind of all eventually bring it together. He thought that you could reconcile faith in Christ with having these pants that, you know, so proudly featured the penis. And uh, he believed he'd say that I see no contradiction in what Christ taught and my pants, except in the minds of people who have perverted his teachings. He would quote from the book of Deuteronomy that a woman must not wear men's clothing and a man must not wear women's clothing. This is abhorrent to the Lord your God. So uh, he was kind of arguing that like, if you know, if you have to wear the most male clothing according to Christian scripture, you know, what better than uh, pants that clearly prove you are a cis man. Yeah, so a few decades ago, Women would, like, be arrested for public indecency if they wore pants. And now he's saying that pants have always been a woman's garment. Yeah. <laughs> Unless they, yeah. Yeah. Uh, no, it's funny. Also, the pants business failed, so he started designing flower pots. Yeah, okay, so that's, like, a funny detour. There's, like, some slightly less funny detours. Uh, his anti-communism. So, while he was walking around with the codpiece that showed off his manhood, he was also touring the country, hating on communism and embracing conservatism. I think that, yeah, his, his whole sudden interest in, you know, men and women being so different, I think kind of attests to that. Yeah, he wrote for National Review, specifically about how evil Marxism is and how misguided the black liberation movement was. He tried to feud with Jesse Jackson when he ran for president in 1984, um, Cleaver claimed that Jackson was exhibiting extravagant sophomoric exuberance, born out of a terrible alienation from power, which he failed to take seriously the life and death struggle between communism and democracy. So yeah, for a while he was welcomed into the holes of white conservatism as a classic why I left the left pundit, but after failing, you know, he tried to run for Congress twice and failed both times, he got addicted to crack, and you know, it's like generally a weird guy to be around. 
Man, especially because you know he was so anti-drug before, back in his Muslim days. I don't think he was ever following any of the pillars of Islam. Let's say that. Yeah. Um, at a certain point, he found his own religion called Christlam. The name again is Christlam. Uh, you can take a guess which two religions is supposed to be a hybrid of. And you can also <laughs> guess from the fact that you've never heard anyone practicing Christlam just how <laughs> successful he was. Um, there's honestly not much to say about it. Like, I, I tried reading, you know, various mentions of it in, like, articles and books. And it's just like a footnote. Um, it was just basically him trying to meld Nation of Islam, which he um, preached in prison, with the evangelical Christianity that he preached um, when coming back to America. For really no reason, other than just, like, those were two religions he practiced at one point in his life. Um, one interesting note is that Chrislam had a military branch called the Guardians of the Sperm. Uh, this is a nice callback to the spiritualism episode we did a couple of weeks back, where just this idea of male virility is like constantly like floating in the ether and then you know occasionally finds its way into like these new age religions we should probably mention that there are uh, a few thousand people in nigeria today who practice religion called chrislam but i looked and as far as i can tell this is a totally independent development i don't think they actually uh were inspired by eldritch cleaver yeah um so you know like his wife left him she took the kids uh when his religion failed he became a mormon he stayed addicted to crack I mean, like, Mormons don't even, like, drink coffee, and this guy's, like, smoking crack. Like, he is not getting a planet when he dies, I'm sorry. Uh, but yeah, like, he did die in 1998, uh, the age of 62. It's pretty young. It would be a tragic end if it wasn't, like, clearly the asshole most of his life. Yeah, I think that Eldritch Cleaver is an incredibly complicated guy, obviously. He did some just unbelievably heinous things early on, up there with, you know, the worst of all the, I would say, individual crimes you can pin on specific socialist leaders. But he had these really unusual contacts and travels with other movements at this time that were all fighting for this kind of common purpose. And I think that in that sense, Eldridge Cleaver, for all of his harms and all of his eccentricities, sort of represents the, the breadth of the broader American left, I would say. Not even just African-American revolutionaries, but the kind of broader struggle the way that it's pretty easy for someone who is a committed revolutionary to hang in their hat and become an evangelical when they want to, or sell out to become a pants salesman. Yeah, I think if we were to psychoanalyze this guy, I think it's just like he likes the limelight, and he probably definitely believed in like black liberation at one point, but you know when that sort of happened without him, right? Like um. You know, things did improve in the 60s and 70s for black people um, while he was, you know, playing revolutionary in Algeria. Um, you know, when he felt like that stuff was, he was no longer needed, then it was like, okay, well, now I'm going to, now I'm going to dedicate time to my hobbies. And that hobby is like um, designing men's pants and flower pots. And then when that didn't work out, yeah, he said, well, I need some money and I like the limelight. I'll gladly sell out, you know, my previous friends in the 60s just so I can, like, get a check from um, these evangelical, like, conservatives. Um, you know, like, admittedly, the North Koreans and Cubans aren't in a great place right now, but they did manage to outlive their critics. And they gave him money and a place to stay while he was there. The Algerians, too. Like, they funded the Black Panther International IQ. And you see it in the documentary that we mentioned earlier. Um, that's in, like, the episode description. Like, he's complaining that they aren't giving him more money. And it's, like, such an ungrateful prick. Yeah. No, yeah, that's, again, it's like, yeah, he's... He, he, he is not a, a sympathetic person. He... Eldridge Cleaver led a very interesting life that gives you a lot to think about. But he's not someone who should be admired. 
Wakabayashi, however, very grateful. Still alive and thriving <laughs> in North Korea. Yeah, yeah. Uh, the episode we did on him was episode 14, which was released in August of last year. In March of this year, someone made an English Wikipedia article about him. That's so, the, you know. The influence, yeah. <laughs> I think, uh, personally, I think that is uh, the influence of Gladiator for Europe in action. Oh, uh, yeah. I, I'd love to think so. But yeah, you got to play the long game. Kim Il-sung know it. Fidel Castro know it. Wakabayashi know it. Aldrich Cleaver did not know it. Like, he was constantly thinking revolution was just around the corner. And, you know. Right. And that, I guess, that's the biggest problem that 20th century revolutionaries made. They really thought that revolution was going to happen. And they didn't seem to have any kind of alternative for what to do when the masses don't rise up. Yeah, I think they're just, like, enamored with that thing that Lenin said, where sometimes, like, a year can happen in a week or something. Yeah, like, um, we mentioned RAM. They believed that they could defeat the United States government in 90 days, right? And there were moments where that might have seemed likely, you know. Black revolutionaries basically took over whole city blocks, especially during, you know, moments of civil unrest. So you could imagine people thinking maybe they could take over all of the city blocks in America. You know, and like the 60s, and especially the late 60s, early 70s, were a time of so much turmoil, so much was changing at once. It's hard to fault these guys for being optimistic. But then we see, you know, there were weeks where years were happening, and then suddenly it stopped. By the late 70s, these revolutionary victories had dried up. You know, after the Nicaraguan Revolution, you wouldn't really see other left-wing socialist takeovers happening, except in very small places like Grenada. Yeah, it feels like at a certain point, socialism was faded out and like nationalism really grew back. It really did. It's, uh, you know, uh, we're all fans of the Radio Warner podcast. On that podcast, they always talk about how 1979 was the year where everything went wrong for the socialist left, because that was really when you start seeing all over the world, nationalist governments supplanting socialist governments or socialist parties that seem to have a shot like in Iran suddenly becoming sidelined or destroyed by new governments. Yeah, I mean, like, a recent example would be the the Arab Spring, like in Egypt. I mean, they weren't, like, socialists. They were more, like, liberal Democrats. But even then, they got sidelined by the Muslim Brotherhood and then by, like, a military dictatorship very quickly. Yeah, and this happens all the time in history. You know, like, not every revolutionary moment is as progressive as its most, you know, revolutionary members want it to be. Looking at Europe in 1848, you know, or... Uh, the whole world in the late 60s. You had these left-wing uprisings basically everywhere, from Mexico to Paris to Japan. But uh, none of them really stuck, you know? Arguably, in uh, this led to the revolution overthrowing the fascist government of Portugal, but that's kind of it, you know? And no offense to the Portuguese, but that's a pretty tiny country to hang all your hopes of socialist governance on. I mean, we Americans did defeat fascism in the, in the ballot office in 2020. So that's something. <laughs> oh, yeah. You know, we've been doing this for a year, right? Yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's been about a year now. Now that it's May, I, I want to say like next week or something is our anniversary. It's pretty cool. I don't think we're not going to do anything special. But you, the listener, can do something special. You can follow Liam and uh, tweet at him and give all the praise to him for this episode or in any previous episodes. <laughs> no, Abram, you are... A- you are the uh, the Theseus, the Odysseus piloting this ship, and we are just your, you're the helmsman and we're your humble rowers. Yeah, I think that 
that does it for this week's Glad for Europe. Tweet at me or Liam if you have any thoughts about this episode. Maybe we'll do um, a sequel because there was so much stuff in that book that I just completely left out because... There's so much to get into here, yeah. It's such a huge topic, you know. Uh, in the next few weeks, we're, we're going to get back to do more episodes about the interwar period between World War One and World War Two. If anybody has any topics they want to suggest about that period, or anybody might know somebody who'd be a good guest to talk about a particular country, that would be amazing. We'd really love to talk about really the whole world in that period. So we're hoping to get into Asia and Latin America, but we'd love to have someone who knows more than we do. I guess that about does it for this week's episode. I'm Abram. I was joined by Liam. This is Gladio for Europe, signing off.